Good evening, everybody. My name is Sarah Stevenson Hunter, and I'm the Staff Disability Advisor at the University of Oxford. And I'd really, really, really like to welcome you all to our annual lecture this evening. Bear with me. Um, as, as you will see, um, this, this world of Zoom webinars is something that is quite new to us, obviously. Um, in the current situation, we're probably all quite used to them, but we're still learning about this. Um, before I just say a few more general points, I just want to go through some housekeeping. So this is a Zoom webinar, so all of your um, audio and video is turned off by default. There will be no capacity for that during the session. But you will see there is the chat box, which if you can put general comments in the chat box, if you have a problem during the event, then one of our moderators will try and help you out. Um, you can raise your hand in there as well if you have a problem. In terms of questions for the Q&A, which will happen after Dr. West has given her speech, then there is the Q&A box that if you put questions in there, we will not um, mention names, but we will ask those questions anonymously and we will try our best to get through all of the questions, but it just depends on timing. Uh, we're going to try and keep this to schedule. And I think those are the main things. The only other thing to say is that for those of you that need captioning, there is captioning available. If you click the closed captioning option on your Zoom screen, then you should be able to access that. That is live captioning, so hopefully that will give you a better experience. And just the final housekeeping point is if you select gallery view as opposed to speaker view, then you should have a better experience of accessing the lecture. So that's the housekeeping out the way. Um, as I said, just some general points. We usually hold this annual lecture um, physically around this time of year. Every year is hosted by one of our wonderful colleges, a wonderful setting to have the lecture. That in itself comes with some physical challenges around accessibility that we've got quite used to dealing with. And indeed, in holding the lectures, I think it's a great learning experience for our colleges and, and university um, community to learn about accessibility issues. In deciding to obviously switch the lecture to online, um, we realised it wasn't just going to be a case of, well, we can just stick a camera and off we go. We realised there were going to be some other accessibility issues, which we hope we've addressed. Um, if not, then please do give us feedback. There will be a poll at the end where you can give us some of your experience, where you're coming from, perhaps any issues I've experienced. Um, do bear with us. None of us are Zoom experts, although we're becoming so. So really, without any further ado, I just want to now hand over to Professor Louise Richardson, our Vice-Chancellor, who's going to introduce the speaker and say a bit more. Over to you, thanks. Thank you, Sarah. And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 2020 Disability Lecture, the sixth annual lecture organised by the Equality and Diversity Unit and the Staff Disability Advisory Group. This evening's lecture is entitled Why Disabled People Drop Out? A neurodivergent student turned academic 
on the neurotypical university. I'm delighted to introduce our guest this evening, Dr. Kate West, who is going to be giving the lecture. Kate is Senior Lecturer in Visual Criminology at Oxford Brookes University. She began her academic life as a lawyer and later criminologist before developing a particular interest in art history. Kate researches the art history and visual culture of crime and punishment in the late modern period. Her first book, What Was Criminology and Unlikely Art History, recovers the role of fine art in 19th century criminology. Kate obtained a Research Council funded DPhil from Green Templeton College and the Law Faculty here in Oxford, having previously obtained a Research Council funded MSc at Hartford College, as well as an LLB from the School of Law at the University of Edinburgh. Kate has been a visiting student in the Faculty of Law at the University of Copenhagen and was awarded an honorary visiting fellowship in the Faculty of Law at the University of Melbourne. In this lecture, Kate, a neurodivergent, autistic and dyslexic student turned academic, will use the social model of disability to frame the different and myriad ways in which the neurotypical university disables students and academics. Borrowing the viral hashtag, why disabled people drop out, created by queer and deaf activist and student Christine Marshall, Kate will draw on her own and others lived experience to reflect on one of the neurotypical university's most profound and still too common disabling effects, dropping out. Please join me in welcoming Kate West. Over to you, Kate. Hi, everyone. I'm just checking that you can you can hear me. Um, hi, everyone. Good evening. Um, I'm hoping you can hear me. I'm guessing you can see me because my camera has started. Great, fantastic. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, I am certainly no expert at Zoom webinars, so you'll have to bear with me while I um, um, participate in my first ever one. So I'm just going to uh, start by sharing the slides and then I'll, I'll get going with the talk. So just bear with me while I share my screen. Um, okay. Okay, so that now you should be able to see the PowerPoint. I'm just going to put it into slideshow function. Talking aloud actually helps me go through these motions. So thanks for bearing with me. Um, play, play from current slide. Okay, so um, great. We can begin. Okay, so I, I'm, I, I'd like to start by um, just with, with a, a content warning. I know that um, there will be many people watching this who may be nervous about what's going to come up in terms of whether the content might um, uh, be triggering for them, especially because it, it tackles a, a topic um, 
a difficult topic for those of us who identify as, as disabled or who identify as having a disability. So broadly speaking, I am going to be speaking about disabilism. I'm also going to be speaking about what's called, and I'll explain what this is in a moment when I get into the talk, because I'm aware there may be people in the audience who don't know what this is, but I will be talking about the medical model of disability as well. And finally, I'm going to be talking about bullying and harassment. When, if I get onto those subjects, I'll try and flag those up. And if you want to mute your microphone or take some time out, then that, that's fine. Just in terms of how I'm going to present, I'm actually going to read the alt text, the alternative text that visually describes what I'm showing in the slide um, for um, unsighted or partially sighted um, uh, audience members. So I'm just going to start um, by uh, visually describing the first slide and also just to manage your expectations as an autistic person. I like my expectations to be managed. There are 14 slides so you can get a sense of you know how, um, how far we are along with the, the lecture. Um, okay, I'm just going to bring up the chat box so I can just make sure that I'm not going off in a whim and someone's trying to tell me something. If I can find it, where is it? Okay, here we go. Okay. Okay, so slide one of 14, it's the title slide of the lecture. Uh, the backdrop is a candy pink. It's overlaid with a blue rectangle. It's offset to the right to leave a strip of pink running down the left-hand side from top to bottom. It reads the University of Oxford Disability Lecture 2020, below which it reads, my name, Dr. Kate West, my job title, Senior Lecturer in Visual Criminology, and my place of employment, Oxford Brookes University. For those of you who who don't know, Oxford Brookes University is um, the other university in the city of Oxford. There are two universities here. Um, so so um, although I'm a graduate of the older university, I am now a very proud faculty member at the newer university. Um, so the title of the lecture is hashtag why disabled people drop out. This sits on the top of the blue square and under that the subtitle reads a neurodivergent student turned academic. Uh, finally, the Oxford Brooks logo and uh, the Oxford University logos are in the bottom right hand corner. Just a word about um, speaking to you as well. I haven't quite worked out whether I'm going to look at what I've thought to myself as uh, as you know, theoretically a thousand eyes. So this, this, this camera that's looking at me. And one thing about uh, being, my being autistic at least, is that my preference is not to look at people in the eye. Of course, I've spent my life masking, so I do it. Um, so I'll, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try um, and I'll spend some, um, expend some energy doing that for, for the neurotypicals, although I should really stop doing that. Um, Okay, so to get going with the talk, moving on to the next slide, briefly describing it visually, it shows two images side by side um, of two villages in Scotland's northeast coast. Sinine is on the left and Crivy is on the right. The north facing gable ends of approximately 30 buildings in each village, they're roughly similar size hug the harbours while the south gables face or are built into the cliffs and hillside. Sorry. I was 17 the first time I dropped out. 
I was about a third of the way through the equivalent of the second year of sixth form in England and Wales and Northern Ireland at a large, low-performing, co-educational state secondary school, five hours northeast of the border between England and Scotland. Its catchment was 33 miles long along the, Mur the north-facing Murray Firth coast, drawing a predominantly rural industrial working class, fishing and farming working class cohort into its student body. These villages are characteristic of the Murray Firth coast. They're historic Highland clearance settlements and they scatter the whole catchment of the school area that I'm from. Um, the village on the right, Crivy, is Neighbours Gardenstown, which is where my family is from. So just turning the slide. The sli third slide of 14, it shows two covered artworks side by side. On the left is Robin Jenkins, The Cone Gatherers. It features a mid 20th century grenade with a military green body silver fuse. On the right is Lewis Grassic Gibbon, Gibbon, sorry, Sunset Song. It features a yellow ochre sun at its centre, it's surrounded by wheat and thistles and the landscape below is comprised of a scorched brown hillside and a green and red field. A labourer can be seen working the plough uh, behind their horse. I dropped out when I was assigned Thomas Hardy's late 19th century novel, The Mayor of Casterbridge. I'd of course been assigned novels throughout my secondary education, including the ones that I spoke about on the slide, but I never actually read a novel by the time I was 17. I didn't know it then, but I was dyslexic, attention deficit disordered and autistic. Pre-Hardy, as I'll call that stage of my life, my go-around, my coping strategy as neurotypicals call it, was to learn about assigned prose through consolidated, re consolidated teaching, the kind of special close teaching that was on offer in the earlier stages that predate the um, equivalent to uh, A-level in England. So I'd kind of developed these coping strategies and specifically, I'd learn, for example, the lesson about a discrete passage so I could take it and apply it to different contexts. It's something I often tell my students now. It's not necessarily the content mat that matters when I'm teaching you. It's the lesson that can be derived from the content so that you can apply that lesson to other contexts. So I was doing that throughout my schooling. So by then, I had developed what... Um, neurotypicals call, as I just said, uh, coping mechanisms. But I like to think of these as formidably dynamic resistance strategies to neurotypical teaching and learning. Um, but resistance was futile to use that social script um, that neurotypicals use in the face of Hardy. By then I was in um, the equivalent to my A-level year. Consolidated teaching has ended and I could no longer camouflage by pretending that I could read when I couldn't. Class sizes had diminished from 30 to 5 and I could no longer hide physically either. What did I do? I dropped out. My being undiagnosed as a dyslexic 
student and attention deficit disordered and autistic student met with my first generation student status. First generation meaning here that with my two brothers, I was part of the first generation in my industrial working class family to go to university. First generation students enter university for utilitarian, that is kind of instrumental reasons. And I entered university for a vocation specifically to practice law, not for an education. I stumbled on the latter, thank goodness. I didn't ask my teachers for help then. I didn't ask them for help to read because I didn't need an education or so I thought. A footnote here is that in Scottish secondary education, university entrants are oft, can, be, can theoretically, like myself, hold unconditional offers to university at 17 years old because we do our entrance, for uni, entrance exams for university before the A-level. So I was actually holding an unconditional or several unconditional offers to my uh, universities of, of choice in Scotland and England was never a consideration, um, of course. Uh, for those outside the UK, um, uh, home students in, in Scotland, we don't pay tuition fees. So it, it would have never crossed my mind to study in, in England. In terms of this dropping out, I didn't know it then, but, um, just making sure you're still with me. It's quite strange doing this because you kind of feel like you might be speaking with yourself. I'm not speaking with myself. Yes, great, thank you. Thank you, Lydia Townsend, thank you. Um, okay, I'm going back in. That will be the last time I do it, I'm confident now. I didn't know it, but this would be the first of two calendar year long intermissions during my undergraduate degree. Um, possibly more than a handful of um, intermissions, totaling three academic years during my doctoral degree, and finally post-student life, an almost intermission last year from my career. It was with each additional intermission or dropout, and most of all that latter example, precisely because I had worked so hard to, um, to, to begin my academic career, that I felt quite started to feel quite strongly that this continu was continuing to happen. Um, and I stopped thinking at this point of my dropouts as personal failures, results of my impairments and my deficits, as the medical model of disability would tell me. And instead I saw them for what I truly think they are, namely the effect of structural disabilism. In this lecture then, I'm going to weave the ways in, in which what I call the neurotypical university, that is a university not designed for neurodivergent students. When I say neurodivergent, historically at least that has pertained to autists, but also now um, the paradigm or way of thinking has expanded to include dyslexic, a dyslexia, dyspraxia, attention deficit disorder, um, Tourette's uh, and so on. So it's a much broader way of thinking about uh, neurological diversity now. So this is not a place that's designed for people like me and I'm sure many people who are watching. So I'm going to be, as I said, weaving um, some, some, some of my lived experiences, sometimes anonymously uh, to protect my, mine and others' identities through participant lived experiences. Um, uh, again, sometimes anonymous depending on what participants wish for. Um, okay. 
Next slide. Okay, slide 404, it features a title noting that in the UK, and this just to note, this is a figure about home students, UK students in universities in the UK, 16.2% of students report a disability. So for disability to re be recorded, it has to be reported in the first instance. Um, under the title, there is a table adapted from Hubble and Bolton 2020, which breaks down the types of disabilities that students in the UK report. Specific learning difficulty is highlighted in blue um, because I'm trying to highlight neurodivergent disabilities and, and, and so is, uh, uh, quote, social communication slash autism spectrum, spectrum disorder, close quote. Um, and, you know, I say that in jest, but sometimes I am using the medical language and, and, and some of us will find that quite oppressive. So I think it's important to highlight that I'm using the language that's, that's on the table. It might not be my own choice. So I'm just highlighting the so of that 16%, um, the slide describes how uh, there are 5.2% of 100% of, of, of the um, disabled student population in the UK, all levels, undergraduate through to D, um, PhD, sorry, doctoral level, 5.2% uh, report a specific learning difficulty. And 0.6, uh, quite a small percentage report um, uh, autistic spectrum disorder or ASD. Um, and I've highlighted yellow as a point of interest and that's just because, especially when it comes to neurodivergence, because someone, I am not just dyslexic, for example, I'm not, I, I'm not just attention deficit disorder. The thing with neurodivergence is often these disabilities are co-occurring. So for example, when I've historically reported disability when I was a student, I would always tick two or more conditions. So I wasn't even being picked up into uh, SPLD or into ASD and certainly not ASD because I wasn't di I'm late diagnosed. So it was towards the end of my doctorate. Um, I discovered I was autistic, self-discovered before receiving a psychiatric uh, diagnosis. And the reason why I'm highlighting these figures is because disabled students overall uh, fare worse in higher education without even considering intersectional data. So thinking, for example, about class, for example, we know that first generation students are more likely to drop out, etc. And race and gender. Disabled students are less likely to enter university in the first instance, less likely to continue university and more likely to drop out. Where they do continue, they take longer to graduate. This is really important um, because they will inevitably incur extra costs. And one of the, the kind of um, areas of organising that I've been involved in is specifically um, organising around continuation fees that are being charged to disabled students. And I'm working with my own university and with um, my former colleges um, in, this, in this regard. I'm not going to speak about that in this talk because I've talked about it a lot else, elsewhere. In terms of the data on academics, because you know, part of this for me, as I said, is, is, is not just about the student experience. I thought once I graduated and I became an academic, everything would be fine because I thought this experience was unique, naively unique to being a disabled student. It's not. Um, in fact, I found it more disabling to be um, an academic 
than a student in the neurotypical university. The data around disabled academics really is not readily available. So I am collecting it slowly. Um, but some institutions that I, I've got data back from um, the numbers are so negligible, and I think this says something about academics even reporting their disability in the first place, that they don't record the data. Um, so, so I will, you know, so that's, that's an issue in itself. Okay, let me just change the slide. Um, slide 5 of 14 shows two cover artworks from two books. On the left is Disability Discourse, edited by Marion Corker and Sally French. Um, and on the right is uh, uh, Neurodiversity, the Birth of an Idea by Judy Singer. So on the left, disability discourse is split kind of uh, vertically from top to bottom into two colours, white and kind of like a neon green on the right. And the uh, book by Judy Singer is, 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 a, is really not very friendly for me as an autistic. Anyway, it's that awful white um, with high contrast, uh, blue title, uh, blue um, author's signature and so on. And there's a word cloud in the middle that says um, words such as neurodiversity, minority, inclusion, autistics, difference, diversity, and so on. So the lecture is shaped by autistic sociologist Judy Singer's 1997 and 1998 uh, neurodiversity way of thinking or what academics call paradigm which, and I feel like I've said that word about five times already, far too overused, as the name suggests, celebrates the neurological diversity, um, quote, close quote, diversity, that word's important, within our species, reframing autism in particular within the social model of disability that emerged in the UK in the 1960s and grew through the 70s. However, more than two decades now after Singer coined this groundbreaking term and concept and it's done amazing work, I'm now starting to be a little bit cautious about using the term itself. And this is a natural way that academic uh, models develop, right? They become sharper, more pointed as time progresses. And that is a good thing. Um, so instead, I, um, I, I don't tend not to use that word. Um, cough, so, because calling or describing someone or something, an organisation like a university, for example, as neurodiverse, quote, unquote, simply highlights neurological diversity without going as far as to highlight the character of the diversity. So it, 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 it's kind of amorphous and nebulous and, and, and it, it's a bit of a kind of liberal surrogate, if you like, and, and kind of um, just just sucks up all the difference. I'm not sure if that makes sense. It does in my, my neurodivergent brain. Um, so this has allowed me instead to speak about neurotypical social structures. Um, so two social groups, neurotypicals and neurodivergents. And that's really important to me because that gives us the language. And I'm not the first, every, lots of, not everyone, lots of people, uh, especially um, neurodivergent people do this. We're all speaking in that language. I noticed that it seems to be more neurotypical people who tend to use the word neurodiverse as an adjective or noun. Um, but I think it's important to have these two um, two social groups emphasise because it allows me, for example, to talk about a neurotypical university, a university who, who um, the structure of which is for neurotypicals to the exclusion of neurodivergence. Um, and importantly, then, it's not about sneaking neurodivergence in through the back door into the neurotypical university because the social structure remains the same. It's about dismantling, um, to use a metaphor, um, don't want to get 
too radical and, and pro university style, um, dismantling the, uh, the, the, the structures, the neurotypical structures um, that perpetuate um, disa disabling neurodivergent students and academics. Okay. Moving on, slide six of 14. I'm just going to check my time. We're good. Back in. Slide six of 14 shows a screenshot of a tweet by um, Chrissy. Um, quote Chrissy, rainbow emoji, film clapperboard emoji, purple heart emoji, close quote. Um, with a Twitter handle at essential sign underscore, the tweet has 439 retweets and 970 likes. I'm going to read out what the tweet says when I talk through the slide, so I won't read out the visual detail of the slide. Um, and also, I should say, you know, I am a I, I, I'm a sighted person, um, so I. I I, this is new to me, so if there are things you want to call me in or out on, I, I'm, I really welcome that if I'm doing, you know, doing something wrong. Um, so the hashtag why disabled uh, people drop out was created by Christine or Chrissy Marshall, a deaf activist and student. In Marshall's word, and this is what this is what the tweet says, why, quote, 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 why disabled people dropout was created to expose the frustration and challenges disabled students face daily in public institutions. They continue, quote, becoming exhausted from advocating for yourself is valid AF. I know there are children in the audience, so I will leave it at that. And the educational system wasn't developed for disabled people to succeed. So you can see here that what uh, Marshall is speaking about again is that social model of disability where the educational system is what is disabling uh, disabling people. Um, so um, I'd also if you know if you aren't familiar with Chrissy's work I would check it out it's really important um, they've actually gone viral on TikTok for an amazing uh, TikTok video about deafness and access um, and actually that video got 5.5 million views so that and, and is to do with the why disabled people drop out hashtag as well so notice the language that uh, Marshall uses. They use the word disabled as a prefix to people and students as opposed to people or students with disabilities. This is how I and many others choose to identify. I am disabled because society disables me and not because the medical model of disability tells me that I am somehow lacking, that I am impaired and that consequently I am in need of treatment. Relatedly, then, it has allowed disabled people to share how outside factors, so nothing to do with themselves, outside factors beyond their control are excluding them with the effect that they drop out. Slide 7 of 14 is a screenshot of a tweet. The author is Ellen Fraser-Barber. Thank you, Ellen, for participating and, and letting me share your tweet. Twitter handle is at EllenFFB. It reads, quote, hashtag, why disabled people drop out? What people don't get is that for many of us with disability, it's not one experience leading to drop out. There's a whole accumulation of internalised comments, belittling, low expectation and discriminatory behaviour in education, which goes way back. The tweet has 21 retweets and 60 likes. The hundreds of tweets and subtweets 
uh, to Marshall's viral hashtag by both students and academics illustrate the numerous and myriad reasons why disabled students and academics drop out. As PhD candidate who authored the tweet, uh, PhD candidate Emma Fraser-Barber highlights in her use of the hashtag, these are experienced simultaneously and cumulatively over long periods of time. And it is, as she puts it, accumulation of internalized comments. And I just read that. The belittling, low expectation, discriminatory behavior in education, which goes way back. And you can see that that you know, that makes, moves me quite a lot. It's, uh, it will resonate with a lot of this audience, I am sure. And really since we were, were children, of course. Okay. One moment, sorry. Others have spoken about how disabled academics, as teachers and colleagues doubt their students and colleagues being disabled on some occasions. One student said they felt their neurodivergence was, a, was in question when their professor continually asked them, why do, they why do you frame your experience through your dyslexia, autism, etc., as though they could, to use the extremely online cultural idiom, cancel themselves. On other occasions, the same student said that the same professor uh, felt that the neurodivergent student was too uh, autistic or too dyslexic to even continue in their program and suggested that they drop out themselves. Um, when I asked that student how they fared in the end, they graduated almost at the very top of a, a cohort that was over 200 people strong. Low expectation, as Alan Fraser Barber says, indeed. Okay, slide eight, eight, eight of 14 is a grayscale, uh, but for a, a couple of blue, a blue scroll and those kinds of um, help points that you can, you can tick on um, at various points. Um, and I've also highlighted a part, um, it's a grayscale image, sorry, of a piece of legislation uh, familiar to many of us, the Equality Act, a section familiar to many of us, section 20, the duty to make adjustments. I've highlighted that in yellow just to kind of draw attention to it. The government crest is on the top left hand corner and the National Archives logo um, is in the top right. When it comes to why we neurodivergent people drop out of the neurotypical university, I want to focus on one reason, um, time constraints, but also I think this gets to the heart of, of something I'm trying to develop for, for my eventual book, as I, as I call it. Um, um, I want to focus on one reason. Um, I always tell my students to avoid hyperbolic language, but I'm going to excuse myself on this occasion because I think it reflects uh, the empirical reality quite well. What I call the vast chasm between the Section 20 duty for HEIs, that is higher education institutions, and government funders working in partnership to make adjustments for their disabled students and academics in their employment under the Equality Act 2010. So this gap between that and what is happening on the ground, to be a little bit sharper and blunt, more blunt about it, um, I want to talk about the failure of public sector organisations to implement the duty that is mandated by law. Um, this next slide, I am aware it may be distressing. Um, actually, I'll take it off for a second. The next slide might be distressing for people. It might give you sensory overload. Um, 
so just to just to let you know that's coming up if you want to dim the screen etc or or um, just so you can hear my voice but it's kind of designed that way in purpose to demonstrate what new words look like to me when I'm reading as a dyslexic reader so I'm just going to put that slide back up on the screen now so slide 9 of 14 is a series of dyslexic misspellings of the word anachronism and I've I've included these these are my own dyslexic misspellings by the way I've included them kind of left to right and they kind of cover the whole page it kind of makes it looks like it's endless and ongoing um, students have to provide evidence of their neurodivergence in order to access reasonable adjustments, a problem in itself. This is another big theme in the Why Disabled People Dropout hashtag. First, students have to at least suspect that they are neurodivergent. Is the death penalty an anachronism change of tack? This was the question that was the precursor to my dyslexia diagnosis and also the precursor to the suggestion that I um, was attention deficit disordered and also that I might need to get checked out for sensory processing disorder and Erlen syndrome. Anyway, so it kind of started the journey. I was a law student, right? So this is the question that was being posed to us. Anachronism appeared to me, as you see it here on the screen, um, in this now digitally on trend and thereby confront, um, com comforting single spaced formation. When I read a new word and when I read that new word, I sucked up each letter uh, with my eyes, left to right, as right to left they would dissolve into nothingness. Below my first class mark, there was an observation about how frequently anachronism appeared and that I'd spelled it differently and incorrectly every time, complete with a randomised flourish of capital and lowercase a. I now know that my doing so, and I do it in my scholarship now, before I, what I like to call neurotypical proof my writing and kind of fix it for the neurotypicals, um, it's a kind of dyslexic verbal stimming. Stimming is um, a, a, a shortened word um, to describe self-stimulatory -stim behaviour that um, I, I do as an autist. Many autistic people self-regulate through stimming. Maybe it's um, through, you know, um, playing with your hair. It can be anything like uh, biting your nails. It can be doing this, you know, um, stimming is, is great. I encourage it. And actually, um, since I um, obtained my psychiatric diagnosis, I am an unapologetic, unapologetic stimmer, especially in public. Um, so watch out. Um, Okay, so, 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 so I understood that I was kind of repeating and writing this word almost to kind of, to try and capture it, to make it comforting to me so I could feel comfortable because I'd never seen it before. Um, and actually, this happened to me recently, just a couple of weeks ago, and um, so a new book arrived in the post for um, someone I was, I'm living with. And um, they opened the book and I looked at it and I, I read it and I, I looked at the word, I was like, ira, ira. Era, eradicated, irrigated, era, era, era. Eventually, I went through the house, um, as is the Scottish colloquialism, which means into the next room, and uh, asked, it's my brother, asked my brother, I said, what's the word say? He said, irradiated. I was like, ah, irradiated. So for the rest of the day, and actually, even, you know, in the coming weeks, I would just occasionally I'd be like, irradiated. I just say it because it was kind of soothing to do that. Um, okay, next slide. 
we are on 10 of 14 and I'm just going to check the time and, and come out for a moment. Okay, I'm going to speak um, just until, just before seven o'clock, um, so five to, I was told 45 minutes, but I was anticipating starting at quarter past, so hopefully I can push that a bit um, and speak to about five to seven. So I'm just going to go back into the slides, play from current slide. Okay, slide, excuse the beeping outside, there seems to be some building, of course. Slide 10 of 14 shows a, a computer-generated aerial view of the University of Edinburgh's old college. A north, south, east and west wing hermetically seal, which means kind of seals all the way around a quadrangle, which is kind of like a square space um, for those who aren't familiar with quadrangles. I mean, I wasn't familiar with a quadrangle till I um, arrived at Oxford, even though I'd, I'd, I'd gone to a university with a, this university with a quadrangle. I didn't know it's called that. Um, so there's a quadrangle. Uh, it's, it's, it's green with grass, um, as is tradition, I'm, I'm led to believe. And there's a, but there's a lot of concrete around it. This is the law school of the, of the University of Edinburgh where I did my undergraduate degree in law. For those outside the UK, um, uh, and especially those in North America, um, some of you may not know, but you can study vocational degrees like medicine law as an undergraduate degree. Um, different subject about what, whether that's good or bad, so I shall not digress into that. Um, so although this um, eventually, this, the, the, my teacher highlighting this, eventually led to my dyslexia diagnosis, and I actually convey the ease with which I got that diagnosis. There are so many hoops. It relies on a lot of self-advocacy, um, a lot of uh, or a good executive function. When I say executive function, I mean organising, processing, memory, all the things that neurodivergent people struggle with uh, to obtain that diagnosis. Um, so I don't want to actually kind of undermine how difficult that was. Um, and actually, the, the theme in the hashtags is actually that obtaining, jumping through those hoops was another reason why people dropped out. Getting the diagnosis is too hard. And in my position as a, as a teacher, I've certainly witnessed that in the short time I've been an academic, and it's heartbreaking. Um, so, so, so here is a reason why hashtag disabled people drop out. Trauma. I have a vivid memory of when my essay was returned to me in class. Like many autists, I am constantly aware of my body in space. I'm always constantly reflecting on proprioceptive, I hadn't heard that word till I was diagnosed, it's a proprioceptive relationship, kind of a relationship of my body to this chair, to this wall, to touch, to feel. For example, so my body in space, it's always been important to me and I was all conscious of that from a young age, long before I was uh, diagnosed. And also people have always noticed it, my family of course. Um, so I remember my body in space. When I think about my body in space, even you know day to day when I am um, during lockdown, I've been going for walks in, in Woodland and um, I, I, I'm always thinking of myself in space aerially, that is from the sky. So um, I guess we could kind of compare it to Google Earth is kind of the way I visualize my body in space generally. Um, and that's how I remember this experience at the University of Edinburgh. 
I was sat in the east wing of the University of Edinburgh's old college where that yellow square, um, just to describe the slide, I don't think I did that, in the uh, north um, west side of the quad there's a yellow square and about one two three it was three floors up one floor down was where the classroom was um, and I sat in that classroom with my back to the north wall of the college I was sat in the northeast corner of a boardroom style um, set up classroom so that's a classroom where the tables are kind of set up like um, around in a, in a boardroom I suppose, it's the best way I can describe it, I'm afraid. I remember the trauma in that space and the difficulty I had returning to class. It held it in my body. In her 2014 post about being a dyslexic early career academic, and thank you so much to the historian and lecturer Lucinda Matthews-Jones who allowed me to share this experience, how she was traumatised for two years when a reviewer questioned her miscapitalization of the sea in church. Next slide. Slide 11 of 14 shows a screenshot um, of the AQ10 or autism spectrum, I can't say this word, quote, I'm not going to try, quotient, and you know, that, this, this will be my stim for the next few weeks, quotient, quotient, who knows, quotient, that sounds that sounds good. Under the title, there is a sentence explaining this is a is a quote, quick referral guide for adults with suspected autism who do not have a learning disability. Autism um, can co-occur with learning disability, which is why um, that is a sentence included in there. Below the title are 10 statements adjacent to which are the options to quote, definitely agree, slightly agree, slightly disagree and definitely disagree. Below this is an explanation for how to score the test, how to generate the score, and whether at what score a referral should be made. Access or lack thereof to self and or psychiatric diagnosis is frequently cited under the why disabled people drop out hashtag. Many will never be diagnosed, especially when considering how, for example, class, race, gender intersect and social capital. In fact, the hashtag autism to white was created by Timotheus Gordon Jr. to highlight how structural race, racism operates to exclude people of colour and especially black people from self, let alone psychiatric diagnosis for autism. Gender matters too. Take the autism spectrum thing or AQ10 test, the diagnostic screening tool for autism. Look at question eight. I've highlighted this question in yellow. Apologies for not mentioning that in the visual descriptor of the slide. It says that you have to definitely slightly agree or slightly definitely disagree with question eight. It's not a question, by the way. I like to collect information about categories of things. Example, types of car, types of bird, types of train, types of plant, etc. Car, bird, train, plant. Um, so, so these are kind of infamously, at least um, I, I think by now, in the autism, actually autistic community, as, as being uh, gendered. 
and actually um, there's a lot of research being generated um, into the late diagnosis of women autists for the way in which diagnostic criteria are tailored to men. I'm a cisgender woman, that's how I identify, um, but my systems of knowledge, and I have lots of special interests, and I, at these system, I like to know how things are, why things are typologized in the way they are, right? And actually, my um, system interests don't actually um, um, align with my gender identity. Um, but this is all contextual. It's totally contextual. So there are many, for example, cis women autists who I know who um, have a lot of systems knowledge about, for example, cosmetics. I also, by the way, have a lot of systems knowledge about shampoo, conditioner, ingredients, etc. Don't really care about shampoo and conditioner. I just want to understand the way in which ingredients manifest the way you do. I could imagine people are are really like, wow, okay. Um, and it is contextual. I spent a lot of time in the car driving from the northeast of Scotland to the southwest of England to visit my mother's parents, my grandparents, they're English. The journey took 14 hours without breaks. And so I had a lot of time to get interested in the systems underpinning vehicles and especially heavy haulage vehicles, which I'm still fascinated by. Equally, because my dad, um, my granddad, my great grandfather um, uh, were trawlermen, as children we spent a lot of time at industrial fishing ports. This is Fraserburgh Harbour. In the slide, sorry, there's also an image of um, Fraserburgh Harbour in the northeast of Scotland. There are two trawling boats in the harbour. One is a kind of turquoise blue and the other is a, um, a kind of more royal blue. The boat registrations are FR285, standing for Fraserburgh uh, 285 and BF27, Banff 27. Um, and this is the, the, the harbour, the port that my, my dad fished from. And as a child, I have uh, vivid memories of, of going to this port at the weekend when uh, the boats came in on a Friday and, and left again early, sometimes on a Sunday night early on a Monday morning. And generally being from a fishing community and having a dad who's a trawlerman and your whole family being involved in fishing, you get to know a lot about fishing boats. So I had these quite gendered, actually, uh, systems of knowledge. The point is, though, access to psychiatric diagnosis is key to keep neurodivergent students in education. So long as this barrier remains in place, and I don't think it should, let's be clear, normatively, which means ideally speaking, self-diagnosis ought to be valid for the reasons that I mentioned. It's more, more um, pr privilege plays into diagnosis, right? And we need to start recognising that. And, 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 and it's required because this is uh, the requirement to access reasonable adjustments. Just coming out to check the time. Okay, I've got five minutes, which is perfect. Play from current slide. Slide 12 of 14 is a screenshot of the Manchester University, uh, University in England, by the way, uh, for those overseas, um, uh, staff net pages, and specifically the Disability Advisory Support Service staff service. The colourway is the University of Manchester's colours, which are purple on uh, a, a grey scale, um, a darker grey and a lighter grey uh, in turn from the bottom up. On that page, and, and I wonder if there are other um, disabled academics out here who are looking at this 
well, maybe if they're not in Manchester, will think, wow, this is quite something. Um, when I became an academic, I just assumed that there would be a disa disabled staff service. Um, to my discovery, that's actually an exceptional thing in the UK. Whereas um, for students, it's very kind of um, um, standard to have a disability service for students. It doesn't exist for staff. Curiously, as an academic, I have never needed to show my diagnosis. So it's different for academics about this evidence of psychiatric diagnosis, diagnoses uh, to anyone. I've never had to show them, which is kind of baffling, seeing as I went through my student days having to show them. And I'm sure everyone feels this, you know, repeated trauma of being asked to disclose the documents that you receive from psychiatric diagnosis for various things, uh, for various reasons. And you just think, why can't, why is once not enough? Why do I have to keep proving to you um, that, that I am disabled and in my case neurodivergent? Um, so, so I didn't have to do that as an academic, um, including, and this is the thing that baffles me most, um, the Department of Work and Pensions, which is a branch of the government um, who provide uh, state um, social support, financial support, whose access to work scheme fills the place of the disabled students allowance in the UK. Of course, I don't know if this is an exception since disability provisions for employees as opposed to students is so ad hoc in my experience in the higher education sector, there simply isn't enough information out there what the kind of standard procedures ought to be. Um, so I only have my own experience uh, uh, in this regard. I'd be interested to know what other, others are experiencing. Notwithstanding their relative privilege as professionals um, and PhD holders, um, disability provision, in my experience, is much worse for academics than it is for students. It's almost as if, and I think there's also a, a, a hierarchy even within student experience from undergraduate and when you get to PhD, the provision, in my experience, at PhD for disabled students, it, it was bad. And again, sex sector-wide issue. Um, and I was quite shocked by that. And, and then once I became an academic, it became even worse. It's almost as if there's not, there's this, this idea that as you, if you progress through education, you can't be disabled. The further you get, the less likely you are to be disabled and therefore we don't need the services anymore. It's, it's completely baffling. Um, so, for example, very few higher education institutions have a dedicated staff disability service, whereas this is standard for students. I should say Oxford has one um, as well, the old university. Um, so in my and many of my disabled colleagues view, occupational health is not fit for our purposes because it is pre premised on the medical model of disability and there's not enough knowledge about uh, the social model. Um, one academic told me that their occupational health advisor laughed at them and thought they were joking when they requested specific reasonable adjustments for specific, um, uh, specific learning difficulties and autism in relation to their communications. So asking for neurotypical um, or non-disabled colleagues to communicate them in a way that was more accessible. Um, they were left then to rely on the goodwill of a line manager who did implement the change um, and others spoke of changes as well, academics, that they did not request that disabled them even further had nothing been done at all. This is about listening to what we ask for, right? Final slide. 
slide 13 of 14, the title page of volume one of Thomas Hardy's 1886, The Mayor of Casterbridge, The Life and Death of a Man of Character, as its uh, full title is and, and was. The author's name sits below the title together with a list of his previous works, including Far From the Madding Crowd and A Pair of Blue Eaves and etc. <laughs> the publisher Smith Elder and Co of London sits at the bottom of the page. And I want to tie up, finish up now, starting um, where I began with, with Hardy. I'll move on to him in a moment. Uh, there's also a quote quotation on the slide, which I'll read out in a moment. The neurotypical university is designed for neurotypical people. The neurotypical university operates from the premise that we keep structures in place that support naturally neurotypical people, meaning that neurodivergent people have to ask for adjustments when we are let in through the back door. One of the things I've been thinking about as, a, as my role as a teacher and educator is the way in which written assessment remains the, the kind of medium par excellence um, which we ask students to, to undertake. Um, and, 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 and take dys dyslexic students, for example. And this is something, you know, that's very personal for me being a scholar and, and having, you know, writing my first book at the moment and, and, and writing this book about uh, neurodivergence in the academy. Uh, I'm not writing it by that book, by the way, because I've got reasonable adjustments to um, record it and someone's going to transcribe the manuscript, um, which is great. Um, but I'm, I'm slightly confused that, for example, that we ask dyslexic, dyspraxic and ADHD students, especially, to, to complete written assignments. It's almost like this, this quote unquote extra time, which is not extra time at all. It just gives them a, a, a bit more time to allow them to get somewhere close to their um, non-dyslexic, etc. counterparts. So it's not even, I think, that they get anywhere close. We're still asking them to cancel themselves, to not do what they are actually naturally capable of. And that really disturbs me. The issue with retaining neurotypical structures is that reasonable adjustments become individualised. And that's important to the extent that, of course, not all disabled people are the same. Not all neurodivergent people are the same. Not all autistic people are the same. Not all autistic people are the same. I will repeat that. <laughs> we are a, a diverse, quote unquote, bunch. Um, and, and I think retaining these structures and, and, and requiring adjustments to be individualized um, is good because we're unique, but it equally places a huge burden on us. And in my view, there has to be larger structural shift to accommodate us, to, to move towards an academy that is truly neurodivergent or some semblance thereof at least would be a start. I want to end where I began with Thomas Hardy. Hardy, um, which is cited in um, the Penguin edition of, of his work, the 1985 edition, in the introduction by Seymour, Seymour Smith, Seymour Smith says, quote, the business of the poet and novelist is to show the sorriness underlying the grandest things and the grandeur underlying the sorriest things.
The sorriness underlying the grandest things for me are those neurotypical structures that prop up the university, especially these elite places of grandeur. We look to activist work, not just in the areas of disability, um, thinking intersectionally with race, gender, class and other social struggles. These are grand places, but there is a sorriness to them that quickly needs to be addressed. And relatedly, the grandeur underlying the sorriest things, meanwhile, is that of neurodivergent students, academics and people everywhere. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, um, Kate. You've given us a lot of food for thought here. Um, I have some questions from the audience. So if you don't mind taking those. Um, the first question is, as an autistic professor, how do you deal with everything you say or do being interpreted through the lens of disability, our skills become personalized. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you to whoever asked that question. Um, I'm just going to read it, um, short-term memory, dyslexic, so I'm just going to let it sit in my brain again. Catherine, would you mind rereading it for me? Sure. <clears throat> As an autistic professor, how do you deal with everything you say or do being interpreted through the lens of disability? Our skills become personalized. Mm -hmm. I understand. I think there are two answers to my interpretation of that question. If, if people, if my audience, um, whether it's an organisation, whether it's my employer, whether it's my friends, my family, audience here today, um, view me through that lens of the social model of disability, then I'm with them. They, they understand, and that's important for me, you know, I self-identify as disabled, um, disabled is not a problematic word to me, it's something to be celebrated and I understand in the community that is somewhat uh, controversial, there are other views on that. If people are viewing me or interacting with me thinking about the medical paradigm or way of thinking about disability and they see my being autistic, dyslexic, attention deficit disordered and being at the same time, of course, um, because of the disabling um, nature of neurotypical society and, di and disabling society, often our disabilities co-occur with mental health um, uh, 
Ill, um, mental health conditions as well so um, I'm diagnosed OCD as well you know chuck them all in there I'm diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder um, and, 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 and it's funny you know like if people see me in that deficit model then that's when it becomes personal um, I have to say my, my students are just they, they're just wonderful students are always wonderful and I'm very lucky to have such a wonderful team at Oxford Brooks my head of department Joanne Bajato has been extremely supportive as has Brian Rivers if he's watching um, and other people who've made a difference my, my, my team in criminology is just perfect I couldn't really I'm, I'm very lucky um, in that regard and I'm safe which is important but I have the privilege to be safe I think thank you okay the next question uh, i'm going to summarize because it's quite long uh, it's from someone who uh, who was badly treated at one university uh, and indeed bullied uh, mm -hmm. and who later went to another university i'll say it it's oxford where they're doing an msc in teacher education um, and, and has had to recover from the emotional turmoil of a late diagnosis. How long did it take you to recalibrate your late diagnosis in a positive way? Um, that's a really just fantastic question. It's a really moving question, I think, as well. Um, because there absolutely is trauma in that process and I think um, other late diagnosed people will agree in late diagnosis there is um, the first the period of surprise um, if you self-discover which is often the case um, and then if you even if you self-discover I self-discovered during my doctorate and I ignored it I'm avoidant because I'm autistic uh, that's one of my character profiles and I had a really difficult time during the doctorate, not intellectually ever, by the way. I've never had difficulty intellectually. It's always with, you know, these structures and things in place, etc. Um, so I, there was a difference for me between self, there was a gap between self-discovery and then something I, 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 I'm not, uh, I can't remember the scholar who's called it this, but self-acceptance. So we can be self-diagnosed and even psychiatric diagnosed, but we might not self-accept. Um, and acceptance for me is still an ongoing um, journey, definitely. Especially because um, I only self-discovered autism a few years ago. And I never told anyone, I was a secret autist. Um, apart from another late diagnosed autistic cis woman and a late diagnosed non-binary person. And we all kind of self-discovered around the same time, actually. We all knew about each other, but we didn't tell anyone else. Um, so for me, it's very new. And I imagine it will, it will take me a long, a bit longer time. But at the same time, I think it's important to stress how good it feels to be diagnosed when you spend a lifetime feeling lonely. I feel so less lonely, it's amazing. So, you know, I, I have hope for the future, but solidarity um, for people who are, are still on that journey. I guess I'm there with you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, again, I'm going, I, I 
I expect you would prefer me to summarize long questions. Um, this is a question from someone who says, who's concerned about um, the fact that in universities, while attention is paid to the issues you've been talking about, um, it is rare that people, that neurodivergent people are in the places where they can help actually make the decision. So that the principle of nothing about us without us does not get played out. That is a, a really important point. Thank you for making that point. Um, whoever asked, asked it, it's a really great point. Um, and it's something I, I read, and it's also why I, I tend not to use neurodiversity that language, because I think it's important for me to keep the distinction between a social group that is neurodivergent and a social group between um, that is neurotypical, because we are, we are not there yet. So we need to highlight and stress the differences. Um, in, I, I think it's, it, in, in my experience, it has been very difficult working with neurotypical people. Um, and, you know, all minoritized and marginalized and multiply marginalized people will say this. You know, I carry a lot of privilege in my whiteness. I'm socially mobile. Um, and, you know, so I, I just feel a, a fraction of this, right? Um, I'm a cis woman, etc. But it, so it's real. I, I don't have to navigate some of those other difficulties, and it's still so difficult to, to work with neurotypical people. Um, and it is, they're, they're, I think I said, I think neuro, neurodivergent people, we need them in our institutions and we need them to have platforms, we need them to be um, present, we need them to be listened to, we need them not to be constructed as problems. I think that is the most important important thing um, and absolutely that that hashtag nothing about us without us is so important especially with people in the audience who are much more well versed in autism and the problems around um, the way that um, the autism discourse has played out historically okay um here's another one um i'm curious about a comment you made about neurotypicalizing your writing. I was wondering if you could expand on this, and I'm also wondering what neurodivergent writing might look like in the academy. I love that question. It's so good. All these questions are great, but this one is just really close to my heart because it was the, the impetus and the thing that started me on this journey was that when I became a, a so-called professional scholar and I was confronted with turning my PhD into a book and I thought, you know, oh God, I wrote that thing and now I have to make it into a book. And I thought, I really have consciously thought I am never doing that again. I will not allow people to make me do that again. I will publish books. If you want the book, an object, I will make it, but I'm not gonna write it in the way you want me to write it. The first one, yes, because I'm an early career scholar, I need to establish a profile. I guess that isn't particularly resistance motivated, but I'll let myself off the hook for that one. Um, 
I have a, a, a such a plug, excuse me, and I am still slightly culturally Presbyterian in my ways, so I shamefully plug um, the, the web platform I have, which is called dyslexicacademic.com. And in there, I talk about neurotypical writing, especially how it follows this linear pattern. It's actually something that um, the theologian Dan Holloway has spoken about more than me. Um, and you actually draw, drew my attention to it when they actually talked about how this linear form of prose has a history in the, the early modern period in particular, and it endures today in 2020, oddly. What does neurodivergent writing look like? It looks like a kind of practice, at least from my perspective, that is far more typical in the arts. For example, poetry, drama, which has always been an accessible literary form to me. I said at 17, I never read a novel, but I had read so much drama and so much poetry and consumed so much art and music, etc. But linear prose for me is, is not um, helpful. And um, so yes, check out that website and check out there are a couple of posts that kind of explain maybe what a neurodivergent literary form could look like. Lovely. Um, okay. Um, there are lots of good questions here. Uh, here's a good one. What are your top five tips for creating a more inclusive teaching environment? Oh, where individual adjustment for neurodivergent students are not needed. Brilliant question. I'm going to say this all the time. People ask for this, like, you know, people ask, people are great. People ask great questions. Um, it's something I think about all the time. I love my job as a teacher. I love my job as a scholar too, but teaching is just something I absolutely adore. And it's something I think about all the time. For me, um, as an autist and with sensory processing disorder, lighting has been one of the biggest things for me. Um, and even if you're not, you, you, you're not sensory, if you don't have SPD, you might have Erlen syndrome and, and, and bright lighting. I try and dim the lights as much as possible, work with natural lights. My students are extremely um, tolerant. Tolerant isn't the word, they are so generous. They really understand that as being a productive learning space. So one, lights low off natural light is really important so that people are not compelled to disclose and ask or even come out to their teacher um, which is very uh, a very unsafe thing to do number two for me um changing for um giving students an option how they're assessed if they want to complete written assignments that are uh, linear prose then that's fine but if they want to do alternative I, I, I hesitate to call them alternative different kinds of assessment then I encourage that as well and I've actually taken my cue here from uh, Lucy Matthews Jones at Liverpool John Moores University who really writes some great stuff on uh, pedagogy, dyslexia, dyspraxia, etc. Number two. Number three, for me, the classroom is um, um, a space where I would never expect someone to speak. Uh, I never call on students. I want students to have the time to think about the questions that I might pose. 
if they want to ask a question, then I develop mechanisms for doing that. I used to pass a kind of tombola box around the room so people could kind of anonymously post questions and we kind of do it like this, kind of back and forth. Um, I do a lot of movement in the classroom as well. So I think that's four, this might be five not very numerate but I, I do a lot of movement in the classroom um, especially the first years um, of course I suppose that presents its own problems for um, access if people are unable to move so I'm mindful of that as well um, I, I guess in some I'm, I'm trying to think about access all the time for neurodivergence because the classroom was such an unhappy place for me as a student in um, 2010 through you know, 2016. Okay. There are several other very good questions, but I'm afraid uh, that we've got to the end of our question time. Uh, I'd now like to call on, on Thierry Hughes, uh, who is the co-chair of the uh, Oxford University Student Disability Campaign, to give the vote of thanks. You want to start you. There you go. Okay, can everyone hear me? Yeah, fabulous. Yes, zooming is very much a new thing for for everyone. Also, an ambulance just went past, so I'm hoping that will mean there's a, a gap for a while, so you can't hear that. Um, okay, so I'm Terry Hughes. I'm chair of the Oxford Student Union Disabilities Campaign, which we abbreviate to DISCAM. Um, and I'm a medical student at Trinity College, Oxford, uh, coming to the end of my second year, and I'm here to give the vote of thanks. So firstly, I'd like to thank uh, Vice-Chancellor, Professor Louise Richardson, for giving the introduction, and everyone at the Oxford Disability Advisory Group for ensuring that this year's disability lecture actually happened, <laughs> um, despite all of the current adverse circumstances and also making sure that accessibility remained a priority throughout despite all of the changes compared to how the lectures normally run. And now I want to thank Dr Kate West for her incredible lecture. Personally, I identify with so many of the things that Kate has discussed. Despite my not identifying as neurodivergent, I do identify as disabled, having both visual and physical impairments as well as obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and there's certainly a lot of crossover in terms of experiences and adjustments required, as well as clear differences across the spectrum of different disabilities. Sometimes these can even be contradictory. I'm acutely aware after that conversation about lighting that my lighting requirements as a visually impaired person may be very different to a person with sensory processing disorder, but that doesn't concern me. I just find it a really interesting thing to say, how would we, how would we adjust for that in a learning environment? That's something that I would love to try and see how that works. The activist in me could easily talk about the topics discussed all day, um, especially things like the importance of phrases such as nothing about us without us and disabled is not a bad word. But now isn't the time to hear me talk about those. Although we do have discount badges with various of the, uh, these various quotes on which I just found um, as they were being discussed. They might be inverted but I thought I would I'm just showing um, badges that are pale blue um, with the uh, DISCAM logo. And we have one that says nothing about us without us. One that says disabled is not a bad word. We also have the future is accessible and disability looks like this with an upwards arrow. Um, and we like to give them out at freshers fairs and things. 
So instead of me ranting on as the activist in me wants to, um, I will briefly explain why having lectures like this and academics like Kate is so important to disabled students. I know that there have been many times in my schooling where only a few more instances of disabledism would have pushed me to drop out of school. Never mind university, this actually started when I was about 11 years old and culminated in a disability discrimination tribunal by the time I was 15. In fact, the only way I managed to do A-levels was by leaving my discriminatory state comprehensive secondary school um, and attending a specialist college for visually impaired people, which although was a brilliant experience, was only necessary due to the failure of mainstream education to provide basic adaptations. The word inspirational is so often misused around disabled people, usually by non-disabled people who really mean, in quotes, I'm surprised that you can do that normal activity because I'm ignorant of how disabled people function. For instance, when someone tells me I'm inspirational, I'm inspirational for getting on a bus with my guide dog, and they ask me how I know how to get on a bus, like I don't do it every day. But I hope Kate will allow me to say, as a fellow disabled person, and being able to identify with many of the experiences she discussed, that I found this lecture inspirational. And I know that many disabled students who watch this, especially those who have hopes to enter further academia, will be similarly, in similarly inspired. And as a visually impaired person, I would like to additionally thank Kate for her consideration in describing the visual aspects of the slides in such detail. Finally, I would like to thank all of the attendees who signed up to this webinar lecture, um, as well as those who have decided to access it later via the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we're sorry about the technical glitches. We, uh, we will be um, processing the podcast. It will be out early next week. Uh, we will um, send out again the link on all our media. Uh, thank you all for coming. Many, many, many thanks to Kate. It's been a wonderful experience and goodbye to you.